0: The United States of America is less than one week from the polls closing on the 2020 election. Depending upon who wins, the administration will go in one of two very polarized directions. To what level should a Christian expect or desire? It's time to go the second mile in identifying the government's role. This is Travis Agnew, and thank you for joining me for the second mile podcast. We seek to live out the words of Jesus from Matthew five forty one, where He says, "If anyone asks you to go one mile, go the second mile as well." So, even as a United States citizens, we belong to a Heavenly Kingdom, and that means that even in the midst of the most contentious election uh, cycle of our lifetime, we want to make sure that we are following Jesus all the way and not giving mediocre efforts. And so, that's why this podcast exists, and that's why this particular episode exists, talking about identifying the government's role. So. Uh, for, you know, in in our area where we are, I'm in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. I've heard that over 50, 60% of registered voters a couple days ago have already cast a ballot. So there's a lot of people due to COVID restrictions. And I think heightened uh, interest in this year's election and uncertainty of long lines have caused a lot of people to go to the polls early. There's a lot of people that are energized about this. And uh, we're really looking at uh, what does it mean? And people are uh, nervous and uptight. And if you haven't realized this, there are a lot of polar opinions on what's going on right now in our country and even as it relates to each candidate uh, specifically for the uh, office of President of the United States. Uh, will the incumbent Donald Trump, uh, President Trump, continue on for another term or will former Vice President Joe Biden take over in that position? And so uh, as it comes down to as believers, a lot of times we, we kind of ha- can have an unhealthy place of what does it look like for us to truly um, wait and know uh, how we're supposed to interact in a society that does have government, but to know that our highest allegiance is Jesus and our ultimate citizenship is heaven. So for first mile believers, first mile believers would say that they have uh, citizen engagement. They're going to be engaged in the issues. They're going to vote. They're going to be aware. They're going to be uh, involved in it. But if you really want to go over and beyond, do I think more than just mediocre, just being engaged. I think second mile believers uh, are Christian displacement. And what I mean by that is, is that you're able to differentiate between what is temporal and what is eternal. So you have this displacement that even though you are in this world, you're not of this world. This is not your highest allegiance. And so even as you engage in something as divisive as politics, you are fully aware of how that it's got to work into your whole frame of mind, uh, your worldview, and the way that you live your life, and the way that you respond to others. And so to do that, we really have to put the government's role in its proper place. And actually, the Bible speaks to it when none other than Jesus actually comes along and says, I know exactly where the government needs to be in your life and in mine. And I hope his words will help us out today. So there was a time, uh, it's recorded in Mark chapter 20, where uh, Jesus' popularity is continuing to rise and there's a lot of enemies that he has collected through the time. Uh, And so actually there were some different groups of people that were trying to trap Jesus in his words, which is pretty difficult to do. Um, And they knew that and yet they continue to try. Uh, So his enemies were collaborating in an attempt to force him to choose a side between God and government. And um, his response that day, I believe, teaches us what our commitment to both of those uh, two should be. Uh, So what happened was is that in Mark chapter 12, starting verse 13, it says that there are these two groups that came up and approached Jesus. And what's interesting is that these two groups hated each other. Uh, one group was the religious Pharisees and the other was the political Herodians. And uh, what it says about them is that the Pharisees are these uh, law-abiding Jewish people uh, that want to kick out the Romans uh, out of their land and get back to the Jewish way of things. The political Herodians were those people who followed their candidate Herod and that they um, you know, were the ones wearing the stickers the hats, the, the pictures, the T-shirts, you name it. Uh, these two groups, they couldn't stand each other, but they hated Jesus more. And so what they did was that they tried to lure Jesus into a trap. And it was a you know, pretty simple trap. When you look at it, you go, what's the big deal? It's a very big deal. They, um, they asked Jesus whether or not that they should pay taxes to Caesar or not. Uh, And so you've got a group of people that are very religious and you've got a group of people that are very political. And basically they thought either way that he answers this, we've got him trapped because half of the crowd is going to hate him. So let me uh, break it down for you. So the Pharisees thought that if he says that um, you need to pay taxes... All the Jewish people who were living in Jewish land, and yet it was occupied by the Romans, tax collectors would actually collect taxes from the Jewish people to go to the Roman government on their Jewish land. Roman had occupied it, and so they hated the Roman government. They hated paying taxes on what they thought belonged to them. And so if Jesus said, yes, you need to pay taxes, then all of a sudden uh, you got all the Pharisees, all the Jewish people that are mad at him, mad enough to stone him, mad enough to imprison him, or possibly mad enough to kill him. But then, on the other hand, if he said don't pay the taxes, then the whole political party that s- supported Herod was going to rise up, and they were going to attack him, and imprison him, uh, beat him, or possibly kill him. So they thought they completely had him trapped, right? Um, and so they thought they had a great trap for him laid out for him. And and while the the scriptures don't say this, I have to imagine. I wonder if Jesus was smirking because he was literally about to drop something on him. I don't think any of them were prepared for And and what's interesting is so you got this religious group and you got this political group. And they're in odds with each other, but yet they're willing to uh, get uh, on the same page because they're really trying to slow down the work of Jesus. Now, I have to say this: that we also live in a time when religious and cultural forces are hostile towards the work of Christ. Um, and so sometimes the pushback comes from religious circles but sometimes it comes from cultural forces sometimes you're not expecting it but they, they can come from all different types of areas and and enemies of christ and and his followers can use helpful or even hurtful governments to lure believers away from biblical positions and what i mean you would say well goodness this obviously the hurtful side makes sense but also you need to know this that sometimes helpful governments can lure believers away from biblical positions where we water down our faith to make sure we can and, uh, continue to benefit from political favors. So, like you know, when Caesar was in charge, the the Christians really couldn't stand his leadership. But centuries later, when Constantine led the entire Roman Empire to accept Christianity as the dominant state religion, guess what? The church got watered down. And and so there are many times throughout government that when uh, a religion becomes the institute of the state, then all of a sudden it means nothing. When everyone's Christian, that. What does it mean anymore? And so sometimes hurtful governments can slow down the church, but sometimes helpful governments can. And so here's Jesus in this trap where he's got religious group and a political group, and they think they've got him trapped, that no matter which way he goes, he's going to lose half of the crowd and therefore probably be enough issue where they can slow him down or get rid of him altogether. But the thing they don't understand about Jesus is he doesn't get boxed into a corner, he doesn't get trapped, and actually he turned the entire thing on them, both of them. So here's the response that Jesus gave that day, and uh, at face value, you may think, well, what's what's the big deal? So they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he says, well, show me the coin. So somebody in the crowd pulls out a coin, and he says, whose inscription is on that? And so that basically means, like, well, whose whose face is on that? They said, well, Caesar. Same way that if I were to ask you if you, I don't know if you carry change anymore. Most of us don't carry anything but some type of debit card or anything like that. But if you actually do have a dollar bill or you have a penny, for example, uh, and someone would say, hey, whose inscription is on that penny? You would say, well, Abraham Lincoln. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means in. Um, symbolism that it belongs to Abraham Lincoln as a steward of the American government. So what Jesus said that day was, all right, whose inscription is on that coin, the Daenerys? And he said, they said, well, it's, it's Caesar. And Jesus says, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And, and so then all of a sudden, you know, he hasn't finished the sentence yet. But imagine that first phrase you got. OK, you got half the groups already upset with him now. Oh, you render to Caesar what Caesar's. And then he says, render to God what is God's. And you go, okay. Well, that, that sounds great. What's the big deal? Well, apparently, it was a big deal because as soon as he said that, the crowd completely moved away, uh, and they even said, "This, we're not going to ask him any more questions after this." Like he, he totally stumped both groups. Nobody could. They thought one group was going to have the upper hand on them, and yet uh, neither of them did. And so, why is that? Well, let's go back to the imagery. Right? Is that he's saying this that. The image of Caesar was stamped upon the image of the denarius. So therefore, Caesar was responsible for it. And that coin belonged to Caesar ultimately. So render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then he says, render to God what is God's. What is he saying there? Well, the same way that the image of Caesar was stamped upon that coin and it belonged to Caesar. Guess what has been stamped upon you? Whose image is stamped upon every human being in this world? It's God's. And so, what he said in this brilliant turn of events, he said, okay, well, if Caesar's face is inscribed upon that coin, give it to him, whatever he asks of it. But there's something even more important that the image of God has been stamped upon you, um, a human being, that basically saying you belong to him, every aspect of it. So, he's saying any item belongs to the one by whose image it has been stamped. So you got to give to the government what belongs to the government and give to God what belongs to God. So in a Romans 13 way, we don't mind uh, fulfilling authorities and and, and listening to, uh, to a certain extent. And we should obey the government's stance until it contradicts the Bible's standard. And if the government demands something that opposes the Bible, that's when Christians must draw the lines. There's a higher law that we must appeal to. And so with this, if God's image is stamped upon us, We know that our highest allegiance is not to a political party, not to a politician, not to a ruler, not to a candidate. Our highest allegiance is to the one who has stamped his image upon us. And so in, in some of our on um, you know coinage and, and bills that we have as Americans, uh, it will say the this phrase, in God we trust, which is an interesting thing to put on something, right? It was it was taken from the last stanza of the Star Spangled Banner, uh, Francis Scott Key wrote, and it came our motto in some ways, in God we trust. It was placed on coins during the Civil War. President Eisenhower made it public law back in 1955, and, and so it says in God we trust. But if, if we really believe that beyond the coin, let's think about the image that's stamped upon you. If we truly mean in God we trust, there is no area in our lives outside of his jurisdiction. And so no amount of difference, disability, deformity on any person that stamped the image of God should cause them to deny dignity to them. And, and ultimately what it means for us is that we have to realize that while the government does have a certain role in our life, that God has a higher one than anything. And so, in the middle of these next few days, this can be politically charged, polarized, arguing with one another. Realize that your highest calling is beyond any government, any party, any politician, but it's the one who stamped his image upon you. Reprioritize your life around him. I hope to see you on the second mile.